Hello, and welcome to the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. With me, Clive Barber, and my good mate, Noel Tom. For the days when you can't ride your bike, there's always the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. We're back with the, uh, what's it called again? <laughs> I know it's got adventure in it, and bike, and something about trail. Yeah, we're not professionals, are we? We're just having a go. So we are the, we are the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. Okay, yeah. It's, it's only because you said the motorbike thing, I would have rather called it a bike podcast. Oh, no, but that could be confusing. But it's too late now, you've already said it out loud, so we're stuck with it. So it's me, Clive Barber, and my two good friends today. Uh, me, Noel Tom. And our uh, film director friend, is that what you are, film director? Multimedia yeah, guru? Media monkey. Media monkey, that's yeah. more like it. Greg Villalobos. You may have seen uh, some of Greg's films. We're, um, we've been friends for some time now and have been lucky enough to appear in some of Greg's films. Uh, but we thought it would be interesting to speak to Greg and get some top tips about how you make adventure films. A lot of the films you see posted on the social media are, you know, one single shot point of view camera and they're fairly tedious. Whereas, Greg, you tend to do something quite different. So we thought it'd be useful to share some of those tips with everybody else. But before we do that, we thought it'd be quite nice just to understand a little bit more about you, some of your biking history, how you got to where you are now. We're in my mum and dad's kitchen. It's actually quite apt. So I'd like to be able to say that like my biking kind of life started when I was five years old, helping my dad in the garage with spanners, but I'd be completely lying. <laughs> uh, my childhood was filled with art and culture and galleries and museums. And my mum and dad phoned someone to come and change a light bulb. It's actually normally me these days. So yeah, there was no mechanical knowledge in this house as a child my, but I was really really interested in bikes and I've got a photo of me on um, my mum's put me on her brother's little uh, it was a 250 Kawasaki something or other maybe it was a Honda I think you know as it's, it's I don't know if it I, I don't want to go down the gender stereotyping things but I was a little boy interested in bikes but it was never part of my life my it wasn't until I went to to London to study I went to art college down there I went to St Martin's and I got a scooter. But before was, this, but you had, your only exposure to bikes as a kid then was just that thing where your uncle had a bike and you might have sat on it. Yeah, yeah. Like it was in um, in Workington in Cumbria, and uh, I remember being kind of put on the, you know, put 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 on the tank, and, and being ridden around the lanes, just around the house, you know, just fun little stuff. But that was it. You know, there was. Uh, I was into like, like bicycles and stuff, but there wasn't any motorbikes. But did that occasion on your uncle's bike, did that have an impact on you at the time? D- did you walk away thinking from that, One I've day. got to get a motorbike? Well, this is what I'm saying. Is like, I, don't, I was young. I was interested in them. I enjoyed playing with toys and mm. watching TV and um, watching the, um, uh, the racing on, on the TV whenever I could see it. But no, it, it, honestly, it was not like, a, oh, you know, Greg's a hardcore, lifelong biker in the blood, like, not at all. Mm. I think I came from it from a slightly different angle. It was maybe more from, like, the the cultural side of biking, kind of the, the creative side and the design side of a machine that's built and designed and just a beautiful thing, beautiful piece of engineering to look at. So I got, yeah, I got a scooter when I was in St. Martin's in London. It was a little Aprilia 
Havana or Habana custom kind of. So you both had scooters. Yeah. I'm scooters. not sure we can be friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so a little scooter, and then I quickly got off that, and then got onto SV650. Yellow SV six six fifty. This guy's my, my first pop bike. I was after doing like direct access. So what age were you then? It's been about 20, mm. 21, something like that. So I had that in London and that was for getting around town. I really enjoyed that bike. My mum and dad bought me a track day for a brand hatch for my birthday. And that was my first uh, time I crashed my motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was your own motorbike? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh. I was on that. I had, it wasn't any training or anything mm. like that. It was just like a go out and ride and didn't know what I was doing all I knew is that I was not going to come back with like virgin knee sliders <laughs> and uh, I just remember like, I had like baggy cheap leathers like horrible graphics just the cheapest that I get and uh, coming up I think it's druids I call you call it and it was a big long right hander and I just remember just yeah target fixation just see see where you don't want to go and that's the way you end up going and came off and smashed the bike up and broke my finger and all that kind of stuff but um why doesn't that surprise yeah. me but, uh, <laughs> the knee sliders were scratched actually, that good. was good <laughs> so was the rest of me um so i had that for a bit repaired it and then oh, busy starting a business a media business in london and stuff so the bike didn't get used much and it went away and then I sold that. I think I maybe had a couple of years without a bike. But it's odd, like, if you haven't got a bike, you're not a biker. So it's like, didn't really feel right. Anyway, yeah, so the next bike after that was, well, I met George. And one thing led to another. Well, we weren't married at that point. I met George and we moved in. And my business started doing better. And I had a bit of money. And she was like, really, she really encouraged me to kind of, I was like, oh, I really want to get a bike again. She was like, yeah, go for it. So the next one was a Triumph Scrambler. Uh, 900 and that were I didn't really like the stock standard bike so I kind of got it sprayed black and it was it was before the whole custom thing kicked off so um, See, was, I, I had a different story in my head I thought you'd bought the Triumph and then you'd met Georgia and part of meeting Georgia was the I'll pick you up on my Triumph yeah 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 but it wasn't that uh, no mm. no it wasn't <laughs> no I wish it was that cool but uh, no so I had, this, I had the Triumph got it and got like all of the custom exhaust and it was like it was literally you'd start it on a cold day and you'd get like flames shooting out the back of it and uh, it was like it was like it sounded like a spitfire like down yeah, like the absolutely. alleyways of Shoreditch yeah. before everyone else had custom bikes it was just like you know you fire it up and go bang <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that that was fun. And I, you know, it, talking about George, like I, there was a point. It was uh, it's quite a fun journey on that. But I used to like before I had kids and stuff. We used to um, on bank holiday weekends. I'd just throw some old panniers over it, and I'd go riding round on my own, just riding round the south uh, southeast of England, see where I could get to in the weekend. Never knew where I was going didn't have a GPS. I had a roadmap, but it was kind of like just turn left, turn right, see where you get to. Was that a day trip or were you camping out? Camping out on weekends and stuff. So I've got photos from that. So that was that was fun. You At know? that point, did you know the existence of the TRF? No, no, no. Wait, I didn't know anything. I mean, I, I had a scrambler, and I cut, but it wasn't an a off-road bike. Mm. You know, I didn't know anything about off-road riding mm. at that point. You but, were still using stands and stuff at that stage? St- stands? Bike stands. 
What? What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> well, you were still using the stand. The stand on the bike. Yes, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, yeah. Bike yeah. No, no, yeah. yeah. That was way before having a bike on the floor was yeah. normal. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But a fun trip I did on that was like when I decided that I wanted to ask George to marry me. And I kind of, I'm quite impulsive. And I, when something gets in my head, it's like, well, I just got to do this really quickly and get it done. And Georgia was away for the weekend and, and I was like, right, yeah, I think I want to marry George. So I like, it's so random. Like I, I got on the bike and I, uh, I rode from London up to Bolton where George's mum and dad are. And halfway I, I phoned them. I was like, oh, I'm just in the area. You, I might just pop in for a cup of tea. They must have hung up in the kitchen and gone like, I know what's coming <laughs> because there was no way I was like just going to be local to them up in Bolton. And, uh, and so, yeah, I rode all the way up there in my, on my bike. I kind of went in, ummed and and fumbled my way through asking permission to marry George. You actually did the permission thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, it wasn't, it was Glenda, it, um, George's mum. It wasn't until she, over the over a cup of tea on the t- kitchen table she was like oh I'm really excited that's great I'm, I'm sure Georgia will say yes and I was like ah oh, she, she has a choice <laughs> she might say no and that was literally the first time I thought of that anyway fortunately she did say yes and uh, um, yeah so it, I, that bike had some real kind of happy memories for me and then um, this is a long answer to your question it's fine right? um, got all day. but um so then we got married and... Uh, all this mushy stuff out. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got married. It was non-biking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, it's so dull. And uh, we got married and we moved up, long long story short, we, we moved up to Northumberland uh, and I had this bike and we lived on a farm. So we moved from like a tiny little flat in London to a big farmhouse and, and I had this bike and it was great, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it was just sitting in the garage and I was working from home it wasn't really helping me meet anyone or connect with anyone. And that, you, you had no friends because you'd moved up. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know anyone. Things. We didn't know anyone. And um, and uh, and it wasn't a proper off-road bike, but <clears throat> I had suddenly, I'd started seeing people on orange KTMs and plastic bikes kind of covered in mud. And I was like, oh, damn, that looks fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm in a place where you can do that. And it's in a beautiful part of the, the country. And then... I remember being, uh, we were back over at George's mum and dad's place for a weekend and I was just taking myself, oh, I just need some time out. And I'd gone up to the Rocket Centre in Blackburn, I think yeah. it is. And that's a KTM dealership. And I just remember we were we were mortgaging a house, our flat at the time. And I just remember walking in and I had all like the brand new bikes. It, it must, I must have been, it must have been 2012, 2013 or something like that. And I just remember walking in and I was like, right, this is going to be trouble. And, uh, Did you see a salesman rubbing his hands? <laughs> yeah, well, they certainly saw me. Uh, and at that point, I never even sat on a dirt. Well, no, I tell you, like, I had done a off-road day when I lived in London a few years previously, but I'd never really seriously sat on a on a big enduro bike or anything like that and uh and i was like oh well i'm borrowing tens of thousands of pounds stick another seven grand on it yeah Yeah, i'll just borrow a little bit more boom boom. (laughs) and uh walked out with a a deposit on on well i did the classic thing you're a road biker you're like well my bike's a 900 cc like what's the biggest off-road bike you've got 
and uh, the salesman saved me from a 500, but I did opt for 450. <laughs> this is my first bike. And I'm, as I allude to a lot, uh, not particularly tall. And at that point, I'd never even sat on it. And uh, yeah, so bought the 450. And I remember going to pick it up. I hired a van to go pick it up. And the guy had to help me put it in the back of the van. And I just remember driving home thinking, what the hell have I done? Like, like <laughs> It was like... You, I did, had, you actually bought it there and then and put it in the van? No, 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 no. I ordered oh, okay. it and then I had to go back to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And I'd never even sat on it. I just remember driving home to Northumberland thinking, like, this thing's going to kill me. It's like I've got, like, a thoroughbred stallion well, in Well, that's the thing is because you, you don't tend to... if you get, Unless you've got mates that have got EXEs or whatever, you, you can't test ride them, can you? Because you don't get... Very rarely, set, there are days where you can actually go and mm. test ride a bike. So, same as you. I got... I mean, I, I think that I had the choice of a 250, a 400, or a 450, and they were trying to tell me to take the 250, and a, and a mate who I trusted said, no, get the 400, it's got a little bit more oomph, but not too much more. But yeah, it was quite a revelation. We actually opened the throttle for the first time. Yeah. And like, it wasn't until I got it home, and I got it out of the van that I'd sat on it for the first time, and I was like, holy shit. Can't reach the floor. <laughs> like, this is not like my road bike. Anyway, and so I had two bikes for a while, but I couldn't afford to have both. I always planned to sell one. So I sold the, the Triumph and I kept the 450. And that was literally the start of the next significant chapter in my life was learning to how to ride an off-road bike, falling off and using that, well, through the bike, doing a bit of Googling, finding the TRF, joining the local club, and then just making all the friends that I've made since in the last four or five years, using that bike to explore and discover the north of England where I live and beyond. Um, what was that first ride out with the TRF like? The first ride out was with Joe, who we were on mm. holiday with, and it was pissing with rain. Like, Win- winter time? Must have been autumn, I think. Yeah, probably autumn. Maybe it's, I can't remember. I think I got in March. Maybe it was spring. I'm not sure. Anyway, it was like flooding. Was it a typical Joe day? <laughs> well, yeah, no, kind of. Long, long. Yeah. Um, Arduous. It was Joe's friend was there as well. And he had a... Um, yeah, Joe's, Joe's friend was there and he had a quad bike. And it was rivers, rivers. I don't think I, there were rivers higher than I've ever seen it since. I've never seen them that high. So that was quite a like baptism of fire. Yeah, there are a lot of river crossings in Northumbria yeah. as well, aren't there? Yeah. But um, yeah, and now, you know, that bike is is my livelihood mm-hmm. now, you know. So it, I can't play down the significance of that kind of decision to, to buy that bike, mm-hmm. you know, and didn't know where, I know, you know, I met you guys there, yeah. you know, so, yeah. Well we'll, well, we'll come on to what you're doing now, but tell us a little bit more about the the business you had in London that you developed, because that's obviously quite closely linked with what you do now. So I went to London to study in 98, straight out of school, I went to St. Martin's, and uh, it was an art college down there, and I worked. While I was there, I was just getting loads of experience and one of the places that I was working for free was a small independent film company and that was my introduction to kind of... Well, actually, no. I ran a cinema when I was at school, like a big, like an old 35mm projector kind of cinema. So that's a completely different story. Like That was my first introduction to film, was actually handling film. But then 
You like, ran a cinema. You ran a cinema at school. Yeah, I went with this crazy boarding school, and we had our own. It's like Cinema Paradiso. We had our own film film club. I'm not being funny, but we had that at my school as well. Oh, we have a cinema. We had a cinema with a projector and. Yeah, two big projectors, and you roll you you twenty minutes of film on each reel. So it was run, but it was five boys always ran it, one from each year, and so you had like that kind of seniority thing going down. And then you'd meet on Friday nights and you'd prep the film, clean clean the projectors. And were they sort of films that were currently being distributed? Yeah, it was kind of like what you would get in independent cinemas now, where they come out like maybe um, six months after the main releases. You know, you get them. So yeah. Yeah. So you do the whole thing and do, do, that. do I can talk for the next hour about this. And you want, handle right? the projector and do everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything. Like you'd start, so the, those big projectors have, the, you think that there's a light bulb in them, but there's not. The way that they create light is a, an arc of electricity jumping from one carbon rod to the, to the next. Yeah. So you have a big metal box at the back of the projector. They don't have it, it now because you never get it through health yeah, and safety. Fine. But essentially, downstairs, I mean, you talk about a three-phase generator. That was like a 33-phase generator, whatever it was down there. It was just this this box of, like, pure power. And it would send the current up, and you'd have a male and a female um, rod, and they would basically be burning. And so that you'd always they always needed to be about an inch apart, but they were constantly burning, so they're always yeah. going away. So uh-huh. that's why if you're watching the film and it started to dim, yeah. it's because they're getting further <laughs> apart. And so your first job when you joined as the as a junior was our machines, the timers were broken. So you you should be able to set it so they're aut- automatic. So the first job was for the duration of the film, you had to be in the box next to at the machine wow. looking through a, a little you know like the welder's kind of um uh, mask mask yeah. coming there's a little window with like a welder's yeah. mask thing on it and you'd have to be staring at this thing just turning the knob <laughs> like that like just doing quarter turns like every two minutes to wow. make sure that the, and then each projector could only you only have 20 minutes of film on each reel so those little circles in the top right hand corner that you don't see anymore but you used to see yeah. were signals to jump from one to the next yeah. so there was you'd see the first one and then you'd start the motor on the next machine then you'd see the next second one and you'd open the, open the gate and shut the gate on the that machine mm. and and then you'd have 20 minutes to load wow. that that machine back so you look you know you learn the mechanics of it you know, it was, it was quite raucous. It was a boys' boarding school. You know, it was like people, you know, first time, you know, well, when stuff happened on the screen, people would be shouting and jumping around and all yeah. that, you know. So, yeah, it was yeah, it was sad to mm. think that it's gone but now, but mm. yeah. Anyway, so. welcome to the uh, <laughs> Adventure <laughs> Film Show professor, yeah. Uh, yeah. podcast. Um, so, yeah, so anyway, cut all that out and come back to, went to St. Martin's, studied there. Um, started working for small film companies while I was there. I left there, couldn't get a job, started freelancing. You do what everyone do, you work from your bedroom and then I hired a desk in a studio and then I met some of the other guys there and then one of the other guys I started working with more closely, Martin, and then we ended up creating a company together. And we ran that for... Well, I was involved for almost 10 years and that was, uh, yeah, media 
company down in London mm-hmm. doing. We did a lot of stuff with kids, youth pro- um, related projects. But you were making films, or was it more internet internet development? Well, it was a bit. A bit it was. I mean, it was before before YouTube, you know, before facebook all that kind of stuff but yeah we were making making using film to tell stories using other digital tools to tell stories mm. using websites i when the company started i was doing a lot of the work and then when i left i wasn't really doing much of the work i was managing and running the business and that's kind of why i left in the end yeah yeah and we did well and we won you know some cool awards and stuff and yeah, that's kind of like where I learned my trade. But I was really young. Like he's got a shiny, super, super he's got a shiny golden mask on a stick. He has got a shiny golden mask on a stick. I think it might be a replica or a fake. <laughs> it's edible. Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where I kind of learned learned my stuff. And then coming up here was. Um, but you describe yourself taught then in all of this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I went to art school, but that wasn't really. They didn't mm. teach you anything there. No, in not that mechanics of it. No, mm. no, no, no. So yeah, it was just like. Yeah, self-taught, pick it up, give it a go, uh, experiment and learn. And, you know, we I didn't do anything. Like, we, we hired, like, really talented people and kind of... But it, fundamentally, it's down to storytelling. And mm. my particular background is, like, documentary. So it's about finding a story, understanding what that story is and then how to tell it. And no documentary is true. It's about... It's, it's about where the story is within there. And What do you mean the, no documentary is true? Well, it's what you don't put in that's important because... You can't tell the truth. But sure, you're trying to get to the truth in amongst everything. No, this is another long story. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like it's a it's a it's a version of the truth. It's not the truth. A great example of that is the the film that Greg's just released, "The Hunt for the Wild," Mm -hmm. which we were making over a nine day period, and we were we were in. Yeah, but the truth we didn't know we were hunting for the wild (laughs) at the time. We were just on holiday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was a lot happened in that, um, you know, trip that never made it into the final cut. But um, yeah. Um, we all agreed we'd never talk about that ever yeah, again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Goes on the trip. Yeah. So you've gone from being a hotshot multimedia dude in Hoxton or wherever, Shoreditch or wherever you, with your beard and your scrambler to moving up to the northeast. You did a bit of carpentry up here, but then... You've got these, what must be to most people involved in our world, like it's the best job in the world. You ride your motorbike for a living, effectively. Yeah. So um, how did you go from <laughs> Hoxton with a beard to Northumbria, clean shaven? Well, uh, yeah. I've never been able to grow a beard. <laughs> but just get that out of there. Um, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I can't, sometimes I ask myself that question and I... I do feel very, very lucky to be doing what I'm doing. But what I would say is no one, it's quite multifaceted, but what it boils down to is no one kind of gave me that. Like, it's about creating opportunities. I never applied for a job that, well, in fact, I've never applied a job ever. Well, you've engineered um, it, haven't you? Really? Yeah, it's like, I've ne- I, it's about seeing opportunities and then it's about proving your value first. And then getting yourself to a place where you're that valuable. When that job doesn't exist, you can't expect anyone to pay you for it from the start. You've kind of got to prove that it's of value. And it becomes, there's almost like a light bulb moment for the people that you're working with that, oh, I get it now. Yeah. I get that what you're doing can help my business yeah. grow. I help what I get that what you're doing can help my cause multiply. Or whatever it is. So 
Um, I remember I was once going on a trip and I was trying to blag some free luggage and you said to me, you need to be able to prove that you can add value or, or give value. And that, yeah. And that's obviously a big thing. And it? I think when you work for yourself in that kind of world, it's like there's no there's no sense of being able to go to work, clock in, clock out and do an average day. The minute that what I do starts becoming average or without effort or innovation or pushing forwards is the point at which that income stream will stop. You basically made some films involving motorbikes. Seemingly at the time, you didn't have a master plan as to where you were going to go with these things. You didn't know that you were going to end up working for the two big organisations you work for now. You made those films and got noticed. Yeah, Yeah, I mean... Like looking back on it and being able to join the dots and make it a bit or simplify story is so I moved so I moved up um, I wanted a break from working in media so I actually started training to be a carpenter um, at a local furniture company while I was doing that I got the four fifty I, see, I, I think there's, there's a much better story there that you're not telling yeah but it's another long story well, but the abridged version is that you buy a KTM you've got a garage but the garage has no doors. Being a kid from the city, you get on the internet and you Google garage doors, how to make garage doors, and then you work out that you need some timber, and you look up where to buy timber on the internet, and you find a local joinery shop, and you go there, and you remember you saying to me that you saw people making things with their hands, and this was a revelation that here are men making things, and you come back from the joiner shop, and your mind starts ticking over, and you think, well, if I can say to these people, I can, because you noticed that they had a rubbish website. So you said you could work on their website if they could take you on as an apprentice. And they do. And you become a joiner for what? For a year? Yeah, it's funny. I actually had forgotten that story of the doors. It's a great story. So, yeah. <laughs> so obviously rubbed off. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no. So um, I, I, I found this furniture place and I was like, uh, I was working as a, I did have some freelance income based on my old life, uh, but I had some free time and I was like, okay, well, I'm was I 30 at that point or something like that and I was um, no one's going to take me on there will be 16 year olds there that are more valuable to the company than I am so I don't expect to get paid but I think that I once I'm in I think I'll be able to be valuable so I, I, I approached the owner Jeff and I was like I've got media skills which you probably could, could use would you be willing to let me w- work for you for two months for free like for two days a week and although you'd say like for some people they'd you know obviously they'd say yes but in that kind of environment having a complete numpty around is actually a bit of a liability mm. so it was a fair play to him that he kind of took me on and said yeah we'll give it a go so I just became like the oldest apprentice <laughs> in, in the <laughs> workshop and yeah I just worked there um, and then after a couple of months I was like I'm really enjoying it I'd rather get paid for it but you know we'll see and he was like yeah yeah and so I joined the team at that point and just worked my way up and it was a yeah it was a real revelation kind of going back I've always made things but just digitally it was it was brilliant to get to make things for real Mm. and really humbling when having gone from being quite good at something to being really pretty shit at it and there's nowhere to hide and there's no undo button you know you know whatever it is command z like you can't undo cutting a piece of timber five mil too short yeah. on a cabinet you know it's like why well, you know, have to start that again so skipping on what was the the first so you when so you were doing that when we first met and you basically made a couple of films, oh, yeah, that's it, films yeah right yeah which so 
got you noticed and yeah so i was i was working and and i had the bike uh and i was riding f- just purely for fun and then i started filming you know it, it's part of me to tell stories so i just started documenting those trips and making little films purely for fun which is what i used to do a decade earlier before all of the complexities of the business got in the way and it was really again it was fa- it was just fantastic to pick up a camera again and start using it and so i started making these films and i did this trip from it was kind of the early days of facebook and it, it was the early days for me of the trf and i did this trip around the country on my 450 uh this is the green lane yeah relay. well yeah so it became the green lane really relay but at the time all it was was I've got this, I, I hate map reading and I, I didn't have GPS and I'm rubbish on that. I, I made a decision. I'd rather invest, rather than sitting in front of a computer for an evening learning how to plot routes and all the rest of it, I'd rather invest my time in making friends with people that can show me where to go. Um, this, is, but, this is the pre-tech world. So it, well, innocent, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I used Facebook to... And the TRF group, which was very small at that point, there's maybe only like 1500 people on it, not like the thousands that there are now. And I said, right, I want to see if I can get from Newcastle to London and back in two weeks on my 450 on as many green roads as as possible. In my head, I was like, worst case scenario, it's it's going to be worst case scenario. It's just going to be a couple of weeks doing some back roads if no one helps. But people did. So I, I would go from A to B and then I'd put a call out saying, I'm going to be in Cumbria. Can anyone help me tomorrow? Get down to Lancashire. And people did like you guys. Yeah, did. You cheated them because we already knew you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I knew that. Yeah. That's another story. But And then you were like, oh, 10 nights in a tent. You'd actually slept in a spare bedroom. In my <laughs> See, it's never the truth. <laughs> Um, and I did this trip and then I documented it and then I made it into a film and I don't think anyone had really done it like that before because people it's a, it's a particular skill to be able to stitch a story together through film and, and and that I guess got me a bit of attention and then the the club that I was part of the TRF it wasn't the way it presented itself was very kind of old school and it wasn't really reflective of my experience of the club and the joy and energy that I was getting that I was getting from trail riding and so I wrote uh, I found out who was involved in running the club and I just sat down I'm, I'm very used to writing proposals that's what I did a lot of in my old life and I just wrote a proposal that said this is this is me this is what I think is wrong with the way that TRF is communicating this is the the potential opportunities and the benefits. This is what it's going to cost. Are you interested? And fortunately, Mario, who I sent it to, was interested. And it just started from there. So you look at the club now and all of the, the way it presents itself in the media and the branding, like didn't really exist back then. So to answer your question in a long way, really, Clive, like that that the work that I do now, that again, that was the pivotal point. I I put some time and effort in to get a little bit noticed there wasn't anything cynical there. I didn't know that was happening but I'd made some films and all of a sudden people are like who's this guy making some kind of interesting media and then and then I approached the TRF fortunately they they gave me some space to work with it and one thing led to another didn't it that's it you know you in this kind of if you choose this kind of career or this kind of way of living you, you just look back and you can see how 
all the stepping stones are connected. At the time, you never know what this next stepping stone is, but when you look back at it, you can, you've got you, stepping you can, stones. I I look back, and it's mainly mistakes that I've made. <laughs> well, I've made mistakes. I've made mistakes. You know, I think you've got to. But I've been lucky enough to find people that are willing. I think if you if you make enough um, right choices, then you you carve enough space to make some wrong choices. Mm. You know, and so not everything that I've done's worked out. You know, so. Yeah, uh, and you ended, ended up doing a very similar thing for Adventure Spec. Yeah, so with Adventure Spec, I um, when my daughter was born, Juno, I decided that I wanted to stop carpentry, even though I was really enjoying it. But I wanted uh, more flexibility. Well, I just remember that first year that she was born, I was going into the workshop operating machines that were could cut my hand off basically and think oh, I'm so tired I don't want to do this <laughs> and uh, and I just wanted a bit more flexibility of the, like, the way I was working so and then I started looking for opportunities again and and I approached well I'd, I'd known Austin through the work that I'd done and Austin was kind enough to I'm talking about Austin Vince Austin Vince yeah Austin was kind enough to kind of send a, a big up email to Dave at Adventure Spec and then I'd contacted Dave and we just went from there really like again I was just out I said this is me this is what I do I think I might be able to help are you interested maybe we could start on a small little project mm. and we started relatively small that's a great moment in the Green Lane Relay film isn't it when you just happen to turn up at the was it at the Ace Cafe yeah, yeah. and Austin Vince is there and he, and he, and he goes oh, and he, you're oh, that guy because he's, <laughs> he's seen the trailer for it <laughs> Yeah, that was the first yeah. time I met Austin. Mm, so, yeah, yeah. If I've got an opportunity to talk about it, the point I want to make is I, I work hard and I take risks, but I am also lucky and I, I, I understand that. The, the, the decisions and the opportunities that I had in London helped me financially and that carved some space out for me to re-pivot my career. Not everyone has that, you know, but I guess if you've got the opportunity or I had that opportunity, I, I did my best to make it work. Not everyone has a cinema at school. I mean, life just isn't fair. That's what we've learned, I think, from this. Tough shit, boss. <clears throat> uh, do, do you find the harder you work, <laughs> the luckier you get? <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, have you found that now working, like you enjoy motorcycling, you enjoy trail riding, has working within this industry sapped any of the joy from it? I don't think so. I I, I think if... Um, See, there's a danger of that? Or not, I, not it's de- no, I'm definitely aware of that. The The interesting thing is that... So trail riding, I guess motorcycle in general a little bit, but trail riding, you tend to have this gap between you might if you if you get it into it into it younger, okay, you're 16, 17 and you're racing or whatever motocross. But then in terms of trail riding, I joined the TRF when I was about thirty. Um, there were other members in like their late twenties who I've who I'm friends with and have kind of joined at the same time as me. And then you've got this gap. There's not between that and the 55, 60 year olds who are coming back to it because they've got more time and money. Well, I think that's. I think Northumbria is unusual in that because I think from from what I'm seeing in other TRF groups, there isn't that younger element. And I think yeah, you're quite lucky in Northumbria having that. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But, I but but the point that I was going to make is that that we've got um, that gap is because life starts life gets in the way and not just work but it's starting a family and so 
the point you're asking is like, has trail riding or has riding bike become a chore? And I think if I didn't have a family, it may have become a chore. But starting starting a family and having real restrictions on my time mm. and money, um, but mostly on my time, means that trail riding, the fact that I have to do it for work, means that I have to go out on that Wednesday. So it's still, to a, write, it's still a treat to get out. Yeah, well, yeah, I have to go out on that Wednesday to make that film, to review that product, to do that bit of work. Because if I don't do that, then... I'm not doing what I'm meant, meant to be doing, you know. So I actually don't get to ride on the weekends with my friends nearly as much as I used to. The bike, it, it is one, it, it, the imperative for work means that I have to go ride my bike, which is which I enjoy. Yeah. It's not the same. It's not, you know, the trip that we did is a real luxury. It used to be not the norm, but it used to be kind of not such a big deal. But now be able to take 10 days off and go riding your bikes with your friends is like you know so speaking more specifically about the films that you make and have made in the past what and I, and I mentioned something about a lot of the, the films you see are, are pure POV 15-20 minutes of just watching one single camera angle from a head camera what what makes your films different I mean, I would ask... It's, the music, other, other, the music. It's no, <laughs> such a dick. <laughs> I, I fucking hate that comment. Oh, um, yeah, I really like the film. What was the music? <laughs> the thing that took the least amount of work. <laughs> it's like the easiest way to piss mm. me off. That. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, I guess, you know, it's up to other people to say what what's what they enjoy about it from my point of view if I had to kind of self-reflect and critique my work a little bit is I'm a big believer of the the kind of that classic statement that necessity is the mother of invention and that if you had all the time all the money and all the kit it's actually a hindrance so what I quite like about my work is that I use quite basic tools that are available to anyone like GoPro I actually don't really use GoPro much so much anymore but quite quite um quite lo-fi gear but it forces you to be creative in order to do something different you know so it's it's not really about trying to make the same kind of professional films that everyone else is making by getting the same gear and using the same techniques and all the rest of it it's it's about approaching it differently and you know a lot of my references and creative references are i mean they go right back to they really do go back to my time making um, projecting films in a cinema. My first experience of film was handling 35mm reels with lots of tiny little photos on the reel, which projected to, into, into a moving image. So that idea of animation and the fact that film is a series of still images one after the other it's absolutely fundamental to kind of what I do. So, and I used a lot in animation a lot in my previous life um, in London. So yeah, so that kind of stop frame animation-y kind of thing is that style anyway. I think I can kind of look back to that. But then the other side of it is is story. Mm. I mean, if you could make a film with a GoPro that told a story, you'd make it with a GoPro, would you? Yeah, but I don't. GoPro is not an effective tool for me. No, but I'm so. just saying you are so story led that that's. Yeah, I would make it with my iPhone yeah. or whatever. Mm. You know, it's the the stories, the important bit. Uh, the films, uh, the yeah, the films that 
we won awards for and all the rest of it. A little anecdote: some we got commissioned to make a, a film about this thing that happened with these kids, and all the kids would talk to us. Uh, this was back in London, but they wouldn't appear on camera. So much the same as we're talking now. I had this amazing story on audio, but no visuals to go with it, and that's why we got the idea of okay, well, let's animate it because we had to make a film that was going to show on a screen. So we used the real audio and we created an animation to tell the visual side of that. So that idea... Was this before or after the British gas adverts with the talking animals? <laughs> they got the idea from <laughs> you us. Beat you beat Ardman. You beat But that, that again was training really, the idea that the, that the story is disjointed from the visuals and the story is the important part. Um, and that every story, simple stuff, needs a beginning, a middle, and an, an end. And a lot of the projects that I involve, a lot of the stories that I do, they all start out. The stories that I make are A to B stories, really. Yeah. They're journey stories that might have a few nuances within that, but they're a group of people going from one point to another. But I think one of the one of my most enjoyable films, and the one that you're in, always like the um, the coast to coast trial, mm-hmm. um, and this idea of can you get these bikes from one side of the country to the other and if there's a sense of jeopardy and a sense that they might fail I think that's quite a compelling thing to watch you know? so I'm always trying to look for something to frame that you know hunt for the wild it wasn't really until the end of that trip that we realised that that's what we were looking for yeah. but then I was able to bring that in at the start and that framed the story so yeah story is everything it's all about things like a, a friend of mine who's a film editor said to me no piece of footage should ever be more than about five seconds long and I found that if you actually watch even you know big Hollywood blockbuster movies you're never looking at one scene unless it's a big Tarantino yeah. uh, dialogue you know it constantly changes every less even sometimes less than five seconds so a 15 minute POV film is just Deadly dumb. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I don't really use GoPros that much, just because they're so, like, wide. Austin does a fantastic talk at his film festival about the basics. And part of that, I mean, it's, like, it's a stand-up comedy routine, really. It's, it's so good. But he, um, part of it is about this, this principle of you've got a wide shot, a mid shot, and a tight shot. You know, so if I was filming this very simply really you'd have a shot in the corner so you see us all in the room and then you'd have a a tighter shot that might be head and shoulders of us talking and then a tight shot that might be my mouth moving or the microphone so just there's kind of simple techniques in there but um yeah you know but it's a skill it's a skill and a lot of people when you're riding your bike you just want to ride your bike and you turn your gopro on and then you turn it off and that's fine that's there's nothing wrong with that it might not be interesting for other people to watch, but if it's just for you and for your mates to kind of relive an experience, then that's then that's totally fine. But as you know from our trips, I'm on the bike, I'm off the bike, I'm like, can you do that again? Can we kind of get the drone out, get the blah, 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 blah. It's, you resisted the drone, didn't you, for a long time? Yeah, yeah. And so now that you've got one and you've used it, and you, I would say you've used it successfully, how do you feel about it now? Oh, I, it's, it's a fundamental part of my kind of toolkit now. So what else is in the toolkit? You've got your, you've got a GoPro. In fact, we had two or three GoPros, didn't we? And well, I only had one. You had one. You I had, had one. one. Was yeah, that yeah. it? So we had two so, GoPros. Yeah. You've got your drone, which is at what type of drone? So I, so my kit. So I've got a 
GoPro Hero 5, I think it is. I've got my DJI, DJI Spark. Uh, and I was, when I was umming and about getting a drone, I could have got the better one that's got higher res. What was it you didn't like about the idea of getting a drone initially? Well, it's just more gadgetry just, that you. It's more gadgetry, but also then you end up with, oh, it's a film, it's a film with a drone in it, you yeah. know, and it's like there's nothing different about it. It's like, you know, I did try hard, as you know, <laughs> to like to, to figure out how well, yeah. how else can we get that shot that makes the act of getting the shot interesting, an aerial shot. What else can you do? You use a kite, use a long stick, whatever. <laughs> but fundamentally, I realised. To be able to have a shot that sets a scene in terms of shows where you are in the land and the landscape, that that's the widest shot you can get. And actually, it's, it's pretty helpful, yeah. especially if you're kind of going to big, open, kind of interesting land. And tight cam quite literally didn't take off, did it? No, no. no. Well, <laughs> it did. I did, it did, it did, but it, yeah, it was a little bit wobbly, you know. <laughs> And I, you know, I, and I work for clients now. It's a balance between getting a, prof- a, a level of professionalism that helps portray professionalism and quality because the gear that I'm using and talking about is real quality gear. So I want the film to be quality, but also I don't want my equipment to hinder me any more than it needs to. To, to create that super slow-mo high production beautiful lenses and all the rest of it that you do see like the red bull films and all all of that kind of stuff there's a crew involved in that is it there's a professional athlete that has to do that run again and again and again until they get the right shot the nature of what we do the the, the films that I'm involved in, you've still got to get from A to B on your own, on the bike, carrying everything that you've got. So it's there's always a tension between the amount of gear you take and, and the, the quality of the pr- product you're shooting, but also yeah, the, the amount of disruption that you're prepared to to make for the for the <laughs> for the shoot. So you're still predominantly filming on that tiny Sony compact camera. Yeah, so the gear I've got, okay, so there's the DJI Spark, GoPro Hero 5. I've got a little Olympus Tough TG5, which is my 80% of what I shoot is on that. I love that little camera. How much are they? Uh, it's about 400 quid, 350, 350 quid, something like that. It's an Olympus. I thought it was a Sony. It's an Olympus. No, it's a little Olympus thing. And then I, I do have a, a GH5 compact or whatever is micro four thirds camera um with a 12 mil lens which comes out at 24 24 mil because of the sensor size so and that is my slow-mo cam basically i i don't use that i i I use that for shooting photos and i also use that for getting slow-mo i don't really use that for getting any pieces to camera any talking i really why not why well the, the mic's not great on it um and really it's just it's just great for slow motion. <laughs> like it shoots 180 frames a second, which is almost like cheating. You could literally pick your nose mm. and it would look beautiful <laughs> on that <laughs> camera. Yeah, but most of the time it's on that Olympus Tough camera because it just sits in my pocket, comes out. And, and as much as possible, I, I try to avoid any cameras or lenses that have extendable, retractable elements. Anything that's going to collect grit or dirt is just going to break. I use a prime lens on the on the GH5, just a fixed 
12 mil lens it's not a zoom lens or anything um, and the Olympus stuff is a complete waterproof housed whatever. I mean I'm, all, I'm always interested in, in other stuff but you know this time next year I might have a different setup but for the moment that's what I've got you also storyboard quite a bit don't you I've seen storyboards but obviously with a trip like the one we did you can't storyboard before we go on the trip well you so- can you can to an extent you kind of and I have done trips where I've storyboarded literally every shot, like the weekend pass that we were all involved in. That was pretty much to the frame. You were quite close to that, that long weekend. <laughs> yeah. But on this film, I I had a storyboard in my head in the sense of we're going from country to country. What shots do I need to represent the countries? Transitions from borders, to the, having a shot, on a border where you're traveling from one frame, side of the frame to the other that represents you going from one country to the next country. So I had a rough storyboard of key things that I wanted. I didn't know the film was going to be about hunting for the wild, but it, I knew it was going to be about a group of guys going from A to B mm. and that there were key things that I could capture to help tell that. Mm. Flags, flying, country flags, stuff like that. Food, you know. In fact, I had much more. My original idea for that project was about a culinary tour of Europe, but it didn't quite come out. I, yeah, I, I did still, my very best to help with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, noodles don't count, no. <laughs> no matter where they came from. <laughs> you know, so you adapt as you go, but I definitely didn't, didn't leave with, like, no idea. So then you get back from the trip, you've got your storyboard, or you create a new storyboard, and you need to edit your film. Now, I'm assuming you use you use professional software to. Yeah, edit so your I film. use so I subscribe to Adobe Creative Suite, which is a, a suite of uh, software for photo editing, graphic design, publishing, and also includes films, uh, filmmaking. It's not it's not cheap. It's like the the full price is on subscription prices about fifty quid a month. So £600 a year, you're paying for access to these tools. But they are my hammer. They are my lathe. Mm. You know, <laughs> it, they are my professional professional tools. I also, you know, obviously got my laptop and everything as well. Um, so, yeah, I use Adobe Premiere. Um, but it, oh, I get people asking me questions. Oh, you know, what, what software do you use to edit that? And it's like, honestly, it's not... At that level, if you're just starting out, it's it's not about the software mm. at all. Uh, you you can you can cut something together on your phone. All the software is doing is helping you take take a series of clips, cut them up, and put them together on a timeline. The software I use has got you know more complex tools built into it, much more tools that I'll ever use. Mm. But, you know, mm. but fundamentally, that's all it's helping me do. So some free ones that I've used in the past, obviously GarageBand is on the Mac is pretty good. Yeah. Very easy to use, yeah. very visual. And there's there's one I use on the PC called um, VSDC Free Editor, I think it's called. Yeah. And that, that works pretty well as well. Yeah. And I'm an idiot and I used uh, Windows Movie Maker. And that was... I don't think you can get that anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not oh. supplied with um, Windows anymore, oh. annoyingly, because it was quite good. Yeah. Huh. Wouldn't know. I've never used no. Windows. <laughs> <laughs> Mac, Mac, man. So, um, any other Moto filmmakers that you watch and enjoy? 
Well, I was involved in the Motorcycle Film Festival for a few years, and there was loads of great stuff in there. <coughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, including one by uh, a certain Noel Tom. Um, but um, but yeah, that was a great place. It was. A, I, th- I think it's. I don't think it's running anymore. It ran for at least three years, maybe four years. But it was great. It was really inspirational. I went over to New York for that, and it was great. The Cam Cam Elkins has a a project called Stories of Bike, and yes. they are absolutely stunning, yeah. really beautiful. And his stories really fantastic. He was just quite passionate about motorcycles, and he had a, a different job, and he started telling these stories of people on bikes in, I think it's New Zealand. And, and you could just see the progression of his filmmaking, very different to mine, um, kind of very smooth and slick and, um, just beautiful stories of people that are passionate about motorbikes. And, and now that's his job. And they're mainly on Vimeo, are they? Uh, Vimeo, YouTube. uh, Yeah. Stories of bike, just hunt it out. And, and, uh, but I, I just think it's fantastic for Cam because he was doing it as a hobby and now it's his career. You know, and it pays for his, you know, it supports his family and it, and it's bloody good. What was the one you sent me a link? We were talking about it on the way here. The one you sent me a link to. The, the, oh, the Australian uh, yeah, the, Jerkles. Yeah. Jerkles. Yeah, that, that was, was the first one that I saw. Yeah, just, yeah, I think he just manages to capture people. You know, motorcyclists are really kind of passionate people um, about motorcycling. We're all part of the same community. They're, you know, we have tribes within tribes. But ultimately, we're all passionate about. It's really difficult to say what bikes give you, but but he manages to yeah, capture they, that yeah, in, in his films. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's um, yeah, it's great. But I think they yeah they they're different to what I do. But I I look at his stuff and I think yeah you know that's pretty aspirational mm-hmm. work. So what's what's next? What's our next trip? <laughs> well, there's a bike sat outside that you oh, just yeah? picked up today. Can, can you talk about that bike? Yeah, I'll wait for seagulls. <laughs> There's a seagull doing something on it right now. <laughs> yeah, so what's next? Well, actually... Well, this is a spin-off from sort of your, one of your last films that appeared on the internet anyway, isn't it? So, yeah, so... So you did I'm, a test recently. I like the product, so I bought the company! <laughs> I am looking at a Honda CBX 5... CB... CB, CB 500X. Talking literally looking at it out the window. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm literally... Uh, it's, it's in my mum and dad's garden right now. I, I went and bought it today. A couple of weeks ago, John Mitch from Rally Raid was up in Northumberland and he dropped me a line and said, would I like to come have a go on his his CB, but mostly on his GS310, um, the new little BMW. And we've been trying to kind of ride for it together for a while and it's just never really worked out, but I was available. And so we went out and we went for a ride around Northumberland. It was a beautiful day and made this film and it was, um, yeah, it was great. And it's the first time I've actually kind of done any kind of bike review you know i'm not the thing is i'm not a journalist and i'm i'm still or a bike I, rider for that matter yeah, well i kind of know my way around my bike now after many kind of years of fixing the 450 and stuff but uh, you know i i couldn't tell you to be honest how one bike compares to another if i've not really owned it you know mm. not really ridden a lot of different bikes but it was great it was a, it was a, a fun film and my approach to that really is entertainment first and and information second. You know, I, I want you to be able to sit there for five minutes and enjoy what you're watching and then glean some information from it. And if I can give you my opinions 
um, then I will. Um, so yeah, so there was that, and and the three ten, the GS was great. I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was it's a proper trail bike. It's a it's not an adventure bike like you would think of from BMW. It's like a proper trail bike, especially with the rally raid gear on it. I couldn't. I've never ridden one without rally raid mm. gear on, but I, I it was it was great. But the revelation for me was getting on the CB at the end of that because I've ridden my 450. That's my my bike, and we did it big journey on it, it for the tech and it was it it's great but riding that cb was like just it was silky smooth butter it was like oh man this is awesome and i've resisted getting an adventure bike from now on because i've really really loved my 450 and i kind of thought well you know my 450 is like the perfect adventure bike it's a little bit uncomfortable for certain kinds of riding but but you've adapted it yeah i've yeah. adapted it's, it's not like a ready to race anymore it's yeah. it's it is an adventurized I mean, I've, it was really taking inspiration from the Rolling Hobo, um, so um, what he did for, with his 500, I think. But anyway, I got I, like I said earlier, I'm quite impulsive, and so I got off that CB and I was like, right, I've got I've got to have one of these. You know, if I've got one of these, all of a sudden the idea of oh, there's a something going on down in the Midlands or over in Cumbria or up in Scotland and up till this point I'm like oh I don't really want to drive ride my 450 down to North Wales yeah it's going to create opportunities yeah you know so I'm like this thing this CB yeah I will jump on that ride down to North Wales do a day's filming do a day's work photography whatever um it might not be as good on the technical stuff as something that you'd put in a van drive but at least I'm there you know uh, so yeah, so went on eBay last week. No, this week. What were we on yesterday? Thursday. And yeah, I, I bid on this bike yesterday. Won it. Went to pick it up today. It, it wasn't actually in good condition as I thought, um, so we haggled over the price a little bit. Anyway, got it. Yeah, and so I'm going down next. So at the, you were asking me what the next film is. Mm. The next film is actually um, so Bennett's social. Uh, so John Milbank from Bennett Social uh, asked me to get involved in the project. They're doing a, a two-day trip down in the Midlands from Rally Raid. Um, so there's going to be the it's going to be the Rally Raid GS 310. There's going to be a standard GS 310. I'm going to be on the CBX, and Nathan Millward's also going to be there on his Himalayan, and we're going to be doing a two-day trip camp and a bit of a chat about the merits of. No, we're not invited, are we? No, we're not fucking invited, are we? Did you not get that? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I bought this CB because I was going to be going down to Rally Raid. So while I'm down there, I'm going to get some um, some Rally Raid work done on it. And uh, yeah, I'm doing some work with them as well. So, yeah. And can you line Nathan up to do a podcast as well? I can ask. Yeah, it's a nice guy. Why didn't you ask him through Nathan, the, the Nathan, can you come and do a podcast with us, please? <laughs> I'll let you know what he says. Thanks. It lives in Leamington Spa. It's not far from where my family is. Oh, great. Sorted. Right. So, yeah, that's... I don't know what else you want to know. But no, that's yeah, it. Like, that's all um, my questions, I think. Yeah, great. So, Noel, it's been... It has been well, I was going to say, it's been fun seeing other people's films develop. There's people like... There's Pete on Instagram who I've seen whose his photography has really been taken off and he, the way that he's been documenting is enduro world uh, enduro riding down um i don't know where he is in cambridgeshire and will linson uh you know th- there's people i've met through the trf and trail riding who you can see that 
the progression in their storytelling and filmmaking. And one of those people is certainly would be you, no? Yeah. You know. So like, I've I've really enjoyed seeing your films kind of develop to the point where you're getting in film festivals and stuff like that. And um, you know, how have you? How have you found it? I've found that the more films that I've made, the more I'm put off making films. (laughs) (laughs) Because it just seems like a heck of a lot of work. I find it quite disruptive to actually riding. Haven't you sold your camera? Yeah, probably. Yes, I have. I've sold the GoPro. I I didn't find it... Sounds terrible, but I didn't find it rewarding. I sort of... I don't know. I didn't enjoy it. I find it really frustrating to do it because I was kind of learning... As I went along, and I would kind of, I kept losing versions before I'd saved them, and I find it ultimately frustrating, and I didn't enjoy it, and I don't think I'd like to make another one. <laughs> Great, I'm glad, glad we made this podcast yeah. <laughs> because it does take a real level of commitment, and I, I, I didn't enjoy it. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting. It is, it's work, yeah. no doubt about it. You know, it, it, you get out what you put in, and the thing is, you've persevered, and you have turned around some really interesting work and I've enjoyed seeing it. You I know? Should, but I at least film was great. Yeah. But at least really you've tried, good. you know. Yeah. At, least, at least you know... I'm surprised that, it come, that it's come to this. I thought I would make one and, and then I'd want to make another one. You haven't one. seen my Morocco film, have you? I don't think so. It's no. really awful, but I'm going to make you watch it later. Oh, yeah. We'll watch it yeah. in the pub. We're going to go to the pub now. Yeah, yeah. we'll go to the pub. Yeah. We're going to go meet someone... In the pub, yeah, it's got a story in itself, but that's another story. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We really appreciate your support. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you really appreciate what we do, you could consider supporting us on Patreon or buy us a coffee. Links are available on our website, which is tampodcast.com, tampodcast.com, where we also have a limited selection of branded stuff. But either way, please keep listening and spreading the word. See you next time.